It is Saturday, December 17th, 2022. I'm Kevin Williams, podcasting to you from Billings, Montana. We have a lot to talk about today, so let's get to it. For the record, I am an active member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I hold a calling. And yes, I do have a temple recommend. I don't mean that I don't say this to boast. But because of the nature of the conversation, people are going to wonder, are, is Kevin active? Yes. People are going to wonder, how active? Well, I just told you. And yes, I am a tithe payer. Let me start off the podcast by saying this. There is a difference between church policy and doctrine. Let me give you an example. In 1998, in mid-September 1998, I was at a sacrament meeting in my ward, and somebody read over the pulpit what you have to do to qualify for a mission and what you cannot do or what would hinder you from going on a mission. One of those things is a disability. If you had a disability, you couldn't go on a mission. I'm sure that that's probably the case for the most part today. Yes, I know a blind person who went on a mission, but I think it's because his wife was sighted. Therefore, they let him go. Now, I can't verify that for sure, but that's the impression I'm under. Because in recent times, I've known blind people that have tried to go on a mission and they were denied. Anyway, that was the church's policy back then. Who made the policy? Well, the first presidency. Who signed it? President Benson in 1993. We're going to get there later. I'm just setting the stage up here. So here's what happened. After that was read and the three-hour block was over, because back then we had a three-hour block, I went into the bishop's office, and I can't remember why. But my mission came up, and I told him that I wanted to go on a mission, and I was worried that what was read over the pulpit would hinder me. And it wasn't the guy who's reading it over the pulpit's fault either. He was just giving information and encouraging the young men to go on a mission and why we should go and what you should do and should not do and what would hinder you from going. It was nothing against me. I don't want anybody out there, oh, this guy must have hated blind people. No, it was not that at all. It was nothing against me. He was just stating the facts over the pulpit. Let me get that loud and clear. So I talked to my bishop, and I reminded him what was read over the pulpit. And he said, oh, that's just a severe disability. Your disability is not severe enough. Okay. Let's fast forward to the last week of October of 1998. My mother got a call, and she told my dad night the bishop wanted to speak with all of us on Sunday. Interestingly enough, that Sunday was Halloween of 1998. An interesting side note. Well, 
I went, we went in. My dad wasn't able to attend the meeting because he had a church assignment, which happens. So it was just my mother and I. We went in, and the bishop told my mom, Kevin has a desire, or Kevin has expressed a desire to me to serve a mission. And he talked about him calling the missionary department and telling him that I could not go on a mission because I'm blind. And I know the bishop explained to them that I'm blind and all that. So the bishop told, relayed the message. I was pretty livid at this point because it was just expected that I was going to go on a mission. I was not happy about it. And I remember talking to my mother about it. My father came home, talked to him. We all had a conversation, both him, my mother, and I. And I don't know that anything was resolved in that conversation. But nonetheless, we had a conversation. And my father said things like, well, you have to set your personal feelings aside and pray about this. And my father meant well. I would have probably done the same thing. He meant well. And life went on. So let's fast forward now to April of 1999. A few days after my birthday. I went into the state president's office, not to talk about my mission, but for other things. And I told him about the fact that I wanted to serve a mission and is there any way around this policy? Much to my surprise, the state president said that I could serve a full-time mission if I knew a mission president that would sponsor me. Well, he said that, that I might be able to. He didn't guarantee it, but he said I might be able to. Well, this was good news. I was optimistic again about serving a mission. I wasn't completely optimistic, but I would say I was about 60 to 70% optimistic. I was cautiously optimistic because I was preparing myself for the worst information. Well, what do you know? My stake president and I had the conversation with my mom and... Bless her sweetheart, she called the mission president the next day, who happened to have been my great-uncle. My great-uncle said, I'd love to have Kevin out on a mission. Let me go through the appropriate channels. To make a long story short, a few weeks later, I got a mission call. You could imagine the emotions that came over me. I was very excited. And I accepted the call, went on a mission. I served the remainder of his administration, which was 11 months. Why am I bringing all this up? Well, I'll tell you why in a few minutes. But let me tell you this. I went straight out to my mission, so I didn't get the MTC experience. This, comes in, this is a very important part of the story. 
on my mission, uh, what's not even a week of just a few days after I'd gotten on my I've been on my mission. My trainer and I were conversing about concerns that I had, and some things that I was wondering about personally. Then he asked the question, "Why are you here? Why did you go on a mission?" Well, I'll tell you why I went on a mission. The, the reasons changed. I went on a mission initially because it was expected of me. That's really why I went. And I wanted to go because if I knew if I didn't go, then I would always wonder what would happen if I went. It would always bother me. That's essentially why I went. Plus... I did have some spiritual experiences my senior year of high school that made me want to go a little bit more. And it's not like anyone put a gun to my head or anything like that. I, I, I really wanted to go. But those were the reasons I wanted to go was because the expectation was there. And I did have some experiences that were spiritual in my senior year of high school. And I wanted to share those experiences with whoever I could, whether they were members of the church or not. You know what, my... And then I told my companion, and that that, the, the, that reason turned into I wanted to prove people wrong. Because here I was being told that I couldn't serve a mission... And now I wanted to prove the first presidency and everyone else who told me I couldn't do it, I wanted to prove them wrong. And I told my companion everything that happened, everything that I told you, I told him. Do you know what my companion said? That's pretty scary. You shunned away the advice of the first presidency. That was his exact quote, quote. That's pretty scary that you shunned away the advice of the first presidency. I was livid. I wanted to show him who was boss. I wanted to show him that even though he was a senior companion, I'd like to be the one in charge now. I was not happy. If he only knew the fight I had to get out there. What an ignorant companion at that time. How ignorant. Why am I bringing this up? How is this relevant to today? It's very relevant to today. Tuesday, November 15th, 2022, the church endorsed the Respect for Marriage Act. If you think the church just made this statement to acknowledge that they have a say in the matter and that the Respect for Marriage Act is not going to affect them, you are ever so mistaken. It is clear the church is supporting this act. Let me read you the statement. First of all, let's be very clear. The doctrine of the church has not changed. Let's make that clear before I read the statement. Marriage is still between a man and a woman. As a matter of fact, that's what the statement first reads here. It says, The doctrine that marriage is between a man and a woman is well known and will remain unchanged. We are grateful for the continuing effort of those who work to ensure the Respect for Marriage Act 
includes appropriate religious freedom protection while respecting the law and perceiving the rights of our LGBTQ brothers and sisters. We believe this approach is the way forward, that we work together to preserve the principles and practices together with the rights of LGBT individuals, much can be accomplished to heal relationships and great understanding. Now, I think it's important to understand why the church might be doing this, or why they are doing this. Let's go back to 2008, when the church campaigned very heavily for Proposition 8. What happened shortly after? A documentary was released called Eight, The Mormon Proposition by Reed Cowan, C-O-W-A-N, Reed Cowan. In that video, he shows how much money the church spent on campaigning for this proposition. In this video, he also interviewed a person named Chris Butters, who was a state senator at that time. Chris Butters said, I'm paraphrasing, but he basically said that many homosexuals are pedophiles and have a hidden agenda. Chris Butters, as you probably are aware, was a member of the Church of Jesus Christ Latter-day Saints. He's deceased now, but he was a member well, that obviously didn't make the church look good. And remember, there was an opinion leader, very well-known talk show at that time on KSL Radio, Doug Wright, who was very vocal about Chris Butters resigning from his leadership in the Senate. I'm not sure what his leadership was. He didn't resign as a state senator, but he did resign from his leadership. Also, let's remember that the church came out with a policy in November of 2015 stating the fact that parents who are LGBTQ raising children cannot have them baptized until they turn 18. By the way, that policy was overridden in 2018, in April 2018, so two and a half years that policy was instated. One of the members of the Quorum of the Twelve, I can't remember who, but one of, the re one of the members admitted that part of the reason for the change of policy was because of the backlash they were getting. I think it was more than just part of the reason, my personal opinion. But nonetheless, that's what was stated. So we have those issues. We had those issues to contend with. Also, let's remember Dan Reynolds produced a very unflattering documentary called Believer. Very unflattering about the church and suicidal attempts and suicides in the LGBT youth community. Also, on top of that, I think the church recognizes that this is starting to affect many, many people in the church, many families. How many of us 
know somebody or how many of you have a sibling that is in the LGBT community or at least is struggling with same-sex attraction? And my heart does go out to those people, especially being in the church where same-sex marriage is not accepted. My heart does sincerely go out to those people. I know somebody who has a son who struggles with same-sex attraction. And it's not just him. I've heard of other stories. So my heart does go out to those people, but we still have to maintain the doctrine of the church. I am not happy that the church has gone along with this. I'm really not. Yes, there's an amendment that protects them from performing same-sex marriages. I get that. But the amendment does not protect church charities. The amendment does not protect businesses who do not want to support the LGBT community, like the baker who refused to make a wedding cake in, a wedding cake in Colorado. In fact, the amendment right now in the Respect for Marriage Act mentioned that if somebody feels violated, the attorney general can go after that charity or after that business or whoever. It's not well written. Why did the church not endorse Senator Mike Lee's amendment? I think we know the answer. I think the church has been heavily influenced by lawyers, professors, people like Dan Reynolds, Senator Mitt Romney, possibly other senators who are LDS that were for this bill. I want to know who, besides Mitt Romney, that is LDS, voted for this bill. Wouldn't it have been amazing if the church backed Mike Lee's amendment and worked with the Baptist, Baptists and other folks, even many Catholic bishops who spoke out against this, including Cardinal Dolan out of New York. Wouldn't it have been amazing? Understand, folks, I do not hate gay people or anybody in the LGBT community. I don't. The, I worked at a broadcasting company as an intern several years ago. The person who hired me as an intern is gay. He was a lovely individual, and I'm not just saying that because I feel like I have to on the podcast. No, I liked him an awful lot. We actually used to have conversations about why certain music was selected on certain formats and how reoccurrence worked and there was another name for those that were not in the library. You know, you have to know the radio lingo to know what we're talking about, why certain songs were played, how that was measured. And we went beyond research. He actually sat down and listened with me about, told me what a reoccurrent was and things like that. Great guy. So I don't hate anybody in the LGBT community. I've met some wonderful people that are lesbians. Very nice people. 
I don't hate them at all. I think that they deserve the right to good employment just as much as someone outside of the LGBT community. But for heaven's sakes, let's not make this an obligation that they have to hire an X amount of people or they have to do business condoning this cause. And the church is falling right into that trap, I hate to say. The amendment was made to appease not just the LDS church, but anyone else who's gone along with this. Seventh-day Adventists, Methodists, Evangelical Christian Network, the Synagogue Union, just to name a few. And this shouldn't be a surprise to anybody. I get irritated when people say, oh, I'm surprised the church has done this. Why? Why? The church made a statement endorsing the Love Loud Festival back in 2017 and 18. And I just mentioned to you earlier that Dan Reynolds was not very flattering in his documentary. In fact, quite the opposite. He even had people on like John DeLynn, who is very antagonistic towards the church. And in case you don't know, John DeLynn is excommunicated. He does a podcast called Mormon Stories. Go listen to it. You'll figure it out. Dan Reynolds also talked about his mother calling him three times in a row, stating the fact that his brother committed suicide because he got kicked out of BYU due to an honor code violation. But the church came and endorsed this. The church changed their policy about children in the LGBT community who had LGBTQ parents and would not let them get baptized. They changed it. Look at the professors down at BYU. You don't think that they're influencing the church at all? I'll bet you they are. And I'm not saying all professors at BYU are like this, but some are. We're going to get into that. My point is, I am irritated to death when people say, oh, I'm surprised the church has done this. Why? Do you not know what's going on around you? Do you not know what the church has done? And I'm not saying everything the church has done regarding the LGBTQ community is bad. In fact, I think the church has gone to great lengths to reach out to this community. For example... They had a website, and I don't know what it's called now, but it used to be called gaysandmormons.com. Basically, people who were struggling with same-sex attraction. I think that's a good thing, because there are people who legitimately struggle with it. But my question to the church is, and I think we all ought to be asking this, how far can we go before we say, uh-uh, no more? No more. How far down this slippery slope do we go? Now that the church has endorsed this act, we are going down a dangerous slippery slope. How far do we go? Back to the BYU professors. There are two professors that I know of. There is a link to one of, to one of the professors' slide presentations about transgenderism and about the gingerbread person. 
There's also a YouTube link in the show notes that consists of a webinar given by a BYU professor who is a professor for the leadership education at BYU. This professor, by the way, used to be a super a superintendent for the Davis School District. He has been promoting, and he promoted it on his webinar, transgenderism. He has been promoting that schools should not have blue and pink signs for the different genders, that they should be the same color. Well, I don't know. He didn't exactly say that they should be the same color, but he basically said we should get rid of the colors that represent gender, blue for male, pink for female. He's been advocating this. And he's a professor at BYU. He also says that we should do away with just male and female and that there's a lot of space and we should do away with the gender binary line, that there's a lot of space in between. BYU is supposed to be a religious school. That brings me to another question. Oh, and by the way, before I get to my question... He also said that it's perfectly okay for a male to go into a female's restroom if that's what they identify as. I want to know this question. Why are we still, as a church, accepting federal funding from BYU? Why don't we just get rid of federal funding and go completely to a private school? Why? We certainly have the money to do that. There's plenty of money in the church's coffer. We certainly have that money, the funding. Why don't we do it? Why don't we get rid of all federal funding if it's coming down to this? Here's another question that I think needs to be answered. Is it okay now for a BYU student to commandeer the pulpit and come out of the closet for their valid Victorian speech? Is it? I don't know, because now the church has endorsed this act. All kinds of things could happen. I want to know, because Jeffrey R. Holland gave a speech condemning such behavior. Have they changed? I think that's a fair question that we need to know. Also, Why are we not getting rid of these professors that I spoke of at BYU? And I know the argument is, oh, because they're just going to get replaced by other professors. Well, that comes down to my other question I asked previously. Why are we accepting federal funding at BYU? Why don't we just do our own thing? A lot of questions that I think need to be answered here. A lot of questions. Let me talk about Mike Lee's amendment really quick because Mike Lee gave a very powerful speech about lawsuits that are occurring with the Conference of Catholic Bishops. Uh, 
in Tennessee, this is an article I got on my own, but Mark, Mike Lee did touch on lawsuits that are happening in Texas. I guess there's about 200 lawsuits in Texas regarding the Conference of Catholic Bishops. And his question is, what if they receive federal funding? Are they going to be intimidated to go along with the LGBTQ agenda? What if they don't want to do things, for example, such as accept, uh, have LGBTQ parents adopt a child? What if they don't want to do that? Are they going to be strong-armed into doing that in order to keep their 501c3 status? After all, we do have 187,000 new agents coming on board. That's a fair question. By the way, there was a lawsuit that's been dropped by a woman named Kelly Easter in Tennessee because she was denied the chance to foster a child and she was working with the Conference of Catholic Bishops in Tennessee. That lawsuit's since been dropped. But are there going to be many more of those lawsuits happening because of the vague amendment? These are questions that are worth answering, that are worth asking, and I think we are owed answers to these questions. I also think that the church owes us an explanation as to why they are supporting this act. Now, I don't think a statement is good enough. I want to hear it from the brethren's mouth. That would mean more to me. Even if I disagreed with the reason, I think we're owed an explanation. I think we know why, but it'd be nice to hear it from them. By the way, let me explain to you what I mean. Let me explain to you the difference between church doctrine and policy. I already went over church policy. Let's go over church doctrine, and then I'll end this podcast. When President Nelson, or whoever the prophet is, speaks several times in conference about something that's doctrinal related, we need to pay attention. For example, President Hinckley in 2000, told us members to not get tattoos. He also told women to only have one body piercing per ear, and he also told men to not get any piercings at all. Okay, that sounds restrictive, doesn't it? But if you look in Second Nephi, where Isaiah is talking about the daughters of Zion being haughty and prestigious and wearing costly apparel... President Hinckley had a point, didn't he? Therefore, we need to pay attention to his counsel. Now, you're not going to get excommunicated if you get a tattoo. You're not going to get excommunicated if you have double piercings. But nonetheless, it was good counsel that was backed by Scripture. That's what I mean when there's a difference between doctrine and policy. Another example, the church came out with the August 12th letter. That was a policy, basically almost shoving people into getting the vaccines, but it was a policy. 
We strongly urge, that's almost shoving people to get it. We strongly urge that you wear masks indoors in public. But that was not doctrine. That was a policy. There's a big difference. And I'm not saying you should go against all the church policies. No, I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying there's a difference, and we need to distinguish between the two. And we need to exercise our judgment and really use the gift of discernment here to find out what's going on. And yes, I would even say pray about it. That's another topic that I'm not going to get into late. I'm not going to get into right now. But my point is, we need to understand the difference between policy and doctrine. I'm excited for the next podcast. The next podcast will be done after the first of the year. A woman named Julie Bellum will be my guest. She served an LDS mission in Russia after the fall of communism. She served in 1990, I think. I believe is what... No, 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 no. I don't know. She served later. I can't remember. I know. Okay. But she did serve after the fall of communism. And in her master thesis, she mentioned Christians who were practicing their religion underground during the Soviet Union days and how they were demonized, and how that's here, that's coming to America. I'm very excited about the podcast. I'm very excited to read her book. I don't have a date narrowed down yet, or nailed down, I should say, but I'm very excited about it. In the meantime, folks, I will talk to you later. I hope I gave you some good food for thought. Again, I am not attacking the church. Many of you might think I am. I am simply disagreeing with this supporting the Respect for Marriage Act. I am not attacking the church. I still believe in the church doctrine very much. But I think we're owed questions here, and I want you to ask questions. What I would really like is for you to listen to the, this podcast and really think about what I have said, and maybe you can have conversations with your friends or loved ones about this because I think we need to be having these conversations now more than ever. And don't think that I'm going to go off and join some radical group out there. No, that's not my intention. I'm just stating my opinion and asking questions that I think need, uh, need to be answered. I will talk to you later, folks.